Hello, I'm Joan. I'm a Canadian family physician who also works as a restorative medical educator, facilitator, and coach. I create spaces that rehumanize the work of healthcare. I'm creating this podcast to remind myself, as well as anyone else working in a helping profession, that when you are working and caring for your human patients, you are the other human in the room. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of The Other Human in the Room. Um, So today I have a special treat for you, and that's my very first guest on the podcast. Um, And uh, so I had a conversation with Dr. Mimi Maserol, who um, has been a clinician that I've looked up to for some time. We've crossed paths in places I've done locums and my residency, and I've just always loved hearing her takes on medicine and medical education. She's an excellent uh, teacher and just sort of a great human. And uh, she agreed for me to interview her and to learn more about her as a human in healthcare. Um, One note is that this was my first time doing like a two-way conversation and I just recorded it over Zoom. And so one thing I learned is that when I recorded over Zoom, whatever audio situation I had going on on my end was way quieter than than uh, Dr. Maserol's Mimi's was. And um, I'm happy because uh, Mimi has got all the wisdom in this podcast and rightfully, therefore, has nice, clear sound. But I apologize if anyone does have like auditory sensitivities and prefers a smooth volume experience because my half of the conversation is much quieter. And so I've learned um, uh, something for next time. So thank you for allowing me to be human as I learn how to podcast. Uh, And um, I really think you'll still get so much out of this conversation. Um, I really love getting to know people um, on that human to human level and especially learning everything else outside of medicine that they are, how they they bring that into their practice of medicine and what they believe about medicine. And that's basically what this conversation was. I hope you enjoy and uh, take care. You know, do you want to introduce yourself? Like, how would you? Yeah, so I'm Dr. Mimi Maserol. Um, I'm a family physician who has been in practice now since 2006. Um, which sounds like a really long time ago now when I say it out loud. (laughs) Um, So I'm also a part-time faculty at McMaster um, in the Family Medicine Program. Um, And uh, yeah, and I currently work in Cambridge in a family health team. Um, And I just do general family medicine, nothing super special, although I have done a lot of work during COVID um, in COVID clinic. And uh, yeah, mom of two boys, 13 and 10. Yep. Awesome. Married for I can't remember how many years. Before, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Um, Lost track during COVID. Yeah, that was going to be like my sort of follow up question is like, like, who are you outside of medicine? Like, what are the other dimensions of you as a person beyond medicine? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, um, I, I, I've actually, I think about this actually quite a bit because I do feel like there's sort of two types of professionals and maybe that's like a gross, like minimization of the categories, but I do feel like there are some people who truly feel that they embody their, their profession embodies who they are. It's part of them um and then there are people who i would say this is more the category i fall into who view themselves as something else first so the you know whether it's just self or mother or wife or all of those things and then doctor not i don't want to say secondary because it's still a big part of it's like a giant venn diagram but it's certainly not the core of who i am i I think as many people who have entertained at any point in their professional career ever walking away, um, which I think we all have at some points, um, 
if you think that you could actually walk away and just actually be okay with letting that part of who you are go, um, you might be in category two. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly can imagine a life where I think I would always have the skills of a doctor, but I don't think I would see myself or present myself as as doctor as my my primary even my primary skill set i actually think my skill set comes from drawing on all those other parts of of who i am and together actually make me a better doctor but they also make me a you know being a doctor makes me a better mother sometimes it makes me a better spouse sometimes and vice versa so i kind of feel like they're overlapping and and, and somewhat fluid and interchanging but it's not I don't come from a point of view of I am doctor first, right? Yeah. You said, like you didn't come from like the traditional biomedical pre-med background before. Yeah. yeah. I'd say I'm sort of the prototypical, what used to be the prototypical Mac grad, right? Mac student. Um, I did not have a typical, you know, biomedical science undergraduate degree. I actually went into undergrad wanting to study psychology but was unable to actually because i didn't have remember oacs grade 13s so i didn't have the proper oacs to do psychology at the university of toronto because it was a it was a bsc and i was missing some math credits um so i ended up it taking studying anthropology which was just as interesting to me and when i got into studying anthropology anthropology is interesting because it's really there's there's kind of like a whole spectrum in anthropology everything from social cultural anthropology and linguistics and archaeology into biological anthropology and forensics and i ended up double majoring in both so i had like the science part and i had the social cultural part and i really got into the kind of forensics part and that got me sort of thinking a bit more about science as even a possibility for me. And I just decided to apply to Mac kind of on a bit of a whim, but sort of thinking like I really liked, I was really liking the science part, particularly in terms of how it applied like as hu humanism, like to, to people and ap applying science to, to people. And I was lucky enough to get in and sort of changed the trajectory of you know, I'm sure my career would have gone somewhere else. I was kind of looking if I hadn't got into medicine to probably continuing in graduate studies and maybe, you know, doing research or some, something more in anthropology. So, but I've always really appreciated that background, uh, especially as a family doctor, because, you know, it's, it's, it is, in the end, it's, it's humanitarian work in the sense of, you know, it's local humanitarian work. <laughs> and uh, you have to really understand humans and human behavior, human psychology, you know, human culture, everything to really be able to help people, you know, in the, 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 in the societies and the cultures in which they live, right? So uh, I, I would say if you had to ask me in terms of uh, sort of like from an academic perspective, I actually would probably say I feel like an anthropologist first and a doctor second, right? So, yeah. So in, like what you just said, like you have to understand like each human in front of you's like context and like really thinking about it from that anthropology angle I'm now I'm going to pretend to understand. <laughs> so please correct me, but like you do. you're human. I, 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 the idea, yeah, of like, you know, where they come from, what is their culture, like what are their social spheres? Like um I'm curious then when you went through medicine, my experience in medicine hasn't always been that depending on the teacher or depending on the context or like which piece of medical culture I was in, often it almost seemed like the patient, the human context got stripped away and they were just an appendix or they were just a whatever you know yeah you find, that? you find that sometimes it was almost dehumanizing to go through training to become a physician for sure like i mean i think mcmaster tried and tries not to right um certainly in medical school i felt that less because again the program i don't know if it's it still is i think designed very much still to try to kind of make it people and humans first 
um, you know, thus the sort of problem-based learning where it's real stories with real people, they have early exposure to, you know, clinical situations. Um, and I appreciated that. When I went into residency though, you know, when I did my residency in Toronto, so much more sort of traditional kind of um, training, definitely, yeah, like the whole story changes, right? And how you approach people and learn about medical problems can get, um, you know, more down to that sort of, you know, patient X, you know, comes in with Y. Like it, it, it I kind of understand it though that there's a part to being a physician that does require a certain amount of distance and dissociating because you can't feel, you know, all the feels for every everybody and everything. Um, but I do think that one skill set that many of us develop, if we didn't already just have it kind of more naturally, is that ability to sort of switch switch on and off, right, when it's necessary. Um, and I don't know that they actively teach you that i think you either learn to do it or maybe you don't you know um to the detriment of your patients i guess uh and that's something i think you just sort of figure it out over time over how can i be both and family medicine's a good place for that you can still do great work in family medicine without necessarily you know like being empathic in the sense of taking on other people's feelings and feeling them, you can be compassionate, right? And care um, without having to take on that burden. And that that's something that I think should be taught more <laughs> in training, the difference between the two. Because I think we should be, as often as we're capable, com compassionate physicians and compassionate humans, but we don't actually always have to be empathic all the time, right? And there is a nuance there. Um, because that leads to burnout, period. Yeah. That showing up, like, especially these days in healthcare, I think everyone's talking about burnout. And mm -hmm. right now we're recording this in summer of 2022, where there's like a bit of a mass exodus from like all parts of society somehow, but like, especially yeah, yeah. healthcare, everyone's. Yeah, caregiving jobs, particularly. Yeah. yeah. And service jobs, right? Because they do share some crossover. Yeah. What, do you, what do you see as some of the factors like influencing that or do you think that's connected all to like what we're talking about about empathy versus compassion yeah i think probably there is some connection there for sure i think that also a lot of the caregiving jobs um people can only kind of muster the strength to continue working in those fields um, when there are at least some kind of rewards that you reap from it, right? Whether it's some type of standing in the eyes of society, maybe that's what does it for some people, or, you know, had pats from people, thank yous, or seeing the um, sort of the, the rewards reaped that you have sowed, you know, people getting better or people, you know, I don't know, healing, like those things have feedback loops that help people continue, you know, in those jobs when they're really, really difficult. And I think during COVID, I think a lot of that was lost, right? And there were no positive feedback loops coming back for a lot of these caregiving jobs. And that makes it difficult for people to justify the sacrifices that are required for those jobs. And I, I do think, you know, there's also this degree of sort of lack of respect, like respect seemed to kind of like, it was really interesting, you know, we went through this crazy arc of at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was like, rah, rah, healthcare workers, you know, banging on pots and pans. And I remember feeling deeply uncomfortable with it being like, because I read a book about what happened in the Spanish influenza uh, pandemic and how uh, <laughs> initially the same thing happened. People were like, celebrating healthcare workers and then what happened is as the plague spread people started to be afraid of healthcare workers and their children because they were viewed as being contaminated and there were stories of people doctors dying in their homes and nobody there were children who were abandoned and nobody would go in and take care of them and the children starved 
because they were viewed as being contaminated. And and the whole feeling shifted against, and it became, then people were like, oh, stay away from the healthcare workers, they're dangerous. So I remember being very like cautious about all of the celebrating of, you know, being like, oh, let's see where this goes. And sure enough, right here, we went this weird, crazy full circle to like outright actual like disrespect, you know, of healthcare workers, of science and, you know, now people, I think for some people that was just it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. If people don't believe that the work that we're doing matters, then why am I doing this? Right. And, and I think, you know, that, that was sort of the breaking point for many, many people. Right. So that's so wild. Cause like, I, I thankfully never heard a story in COVID about like the, the dr dramatic example of the physicians passing away, but like there definitely was a, a moment, like a season or two where it's like, mm -hmm. no one wants to hang out with <laughs> exactly. Stay away from the doctors, right? And I don't know if you still find it because uh, we're both parents, and like, I think at this point things have shifted. But there was like a whole like segment of a few years ago where there was like extra levels of like politics or drama of like how or who you see and yeah, far away you stay and who decides choosing ask and like yeah we were trying to figure out who was who was high risk and who wasn't and we were leaving it to the lay the lay person to kind of try to figure that out you know and fair enough i won't lie sometimes i use the fact that i work in a COVID clinic to avoid having to hang out with people i didn't want to <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it came in handy <laughs> but you know i think uh we all had a hard time gauging risk Right. Look at how different. My gosh, the first few weeks of the pandemic, you know, we were like not talking to our neighbors and like staying on the other side of the street. And like now COVID is everywhere. And we're like, ah, oh, well, like, you know, come over, I'll wear a mask or like or don't wear a mask. I just had COVID or our whole perception of risk has completely been turned entirely on its head. Right. So um, there you go. Human human behavior right within the context of culture, values you know, all those things influence so much of, of how things play out. I'm curious, actually, if that, like, you know, with your background, did that help you navigate some of that more? Like, I know you're also a human. And so if you felt mildly resentful of certain aspects of society, you know, protesting or whatever, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm just guessing, but like, like, but say you were having those really challenging vaccine conversations we were having last year mm -hmm. the way I was like did you draw on any of those like anthropological skills mm -hmm. to inform how or if you had some of those conversations where people had such like strong views yeah I have always suspected and interestingly I do think that the science now is showing this I had always suspected even before I was a family physician that people who take really really deep lines in the sand over certain issues are not likely to change their mind if you pick a fight with them or try to out out data them outsmart them whatever it is you want to call it out argue them so i uh would never engage in those situations and even with my patients who are staunchly anti-vax it i have n never uh, I think maybe I tried like maybe once at the beginning, but it, it doesn't work. So the better thing you can do is just maintain a relationship. The worst thing that you can do is actually just cut those people out because bad things will happen to them likely um, because sometimes some of the choices they're making lead to them having bad things happen. And somebody still has to be there to help not just because they're humans who deserve help, but also from a public health perspective, often, you know, they're poor decision-making um, or poor analysis of information leads to <laughs> bad things happening that then can affect other people. So you have to keep those connections with people and just keep, I just keep them in that category of my mind of like, oh, okay, I can, can, I can understand why they may th think this way and try to imagine what how their thought process is. And I try not to 
like I try to respect the fact that it's actually really hard to change people's minds. And if they've made a decision like that, it's either because they're not capable of dealing with um, uh, unknowns, and this is like a response to that, or or sometimes like literally they're just not even intellectually capable of actually understanding risk. You know, like you think of how few people can actually understand like true risk and probability and all these things, you know, even being involved in teaching, like in the medical school, you know, these are topics that, you know, come up over and over and many people struggle with them, even who have IQs of who knows what, like 140, 150, right? So, um, yeah, so I don't hold that against them. I try I don't generally engage in <laughs> arguing I don't think there's any point in getting into internet wars with people um, I think just modeling being living my life the way that I live and and modeling what what I believe and hopefully maybe some people might change their mind and if they do engage or sort of say like you know or ask my opinion or do engage in some type of like showing that they want to have a discussion i'm more than happy happy to engage and i always say things to my patients like when it comes to vaccines like well you know do sometimes what actually works with those people are things more anecdotal type of evidence like well i can tell you what i do with my family or i can tell you what i would want for my mom Right. Or so I, I will put it into some type of a kind of more anecdotal narrative story. And sometimes that actually has a lot more um, teeth to it than just being like, well, the evidence shows blah, blah. That's not going to work. <laughs> I'm not convinced that does work. Like, it doesn't. The evidence, I think, shows it doesn't. <laughs> it's even just like our brain, I don't know, probably someone, maybe you even know, like if our brain is good enough at to do the math of something, but like, how then we end up making a decision like is often like it's well it's still emotional emotional based like oh. when, like you look at statistics but you you oh. present the same statistics two ways like risk yep. of death versus risk of life but it's literally the oh, same my favorite is absolute risk and relative risk that's uh, exactly right so yeah. that that can completely change the entire way the whole perception of a discussion goes right like statins are like a great example of that, right? Mm -hmm. So I always try to talk to my residents about that, about like be mindful and be mindful of what you're trying to do. Are you trying to un like influence somebody? That's not really your job, <laughs> right? But it's hard to present data in an unbiased manner. Really, really hard, you know? How you have statin discussions now. <laughs> I actually, I feel, I, well, I don't know if I, I'm going to end up feeling the same as you, but I know that there's a way you can do it where you, it's not even over or under emphasizing, but you are presenting math in two different ways yeah. and it can end up with a different influence on people. Right? Totally. So, yeah. So I'll give you like an example. So just to go back to statins, what I use, I use that calculator with the happy faces from the yes. science, because I think that shows that difference um, quite well. I'll give you an example. Tonight I was with my, my 10 year old, we were, playing Yahtzee, which we haven't played in years, but I thought, you know what, he, he sort of, he has an interest kind of in math and probabilities and stuff. He's asking lots of questions. So we played Yahtzee and, you know, he wanted to know like, okay, so like we played two games, there was only one Yahtzee came up. He wanted to know what are, what's the actual, what are the chances of getting a Yahtzee? And so we looked it up and it was like 0.08% chance. So we figured out like, okay, on average, like how many rolls would that be so we sat i'm not joking for 45 minutes and we rolled the dice over and over and over and over again and what i pointed out to him was that every once in a while we would get four the same because there's five dice five to the yahtzee the same he we would get four and he'd get excited be like oh it's coming yeah. and i was like is it because i'm gonna roll it again do you think the chances are higher that it's gonna be a yahtzee on the next one and he was like Oh no, he's like, it resets like every time you roll it, right? And I said, well, this is part of why casinos make a lot of money because I said, the way you're feeling excited right now is this human, it's your human psychology getting in the way of your actual understanding of the math, right? 
a predictive brain. Yeah, it, you're looking for a pattern and you think that it's coming, but it's not, it's actually not true, <laughs> right? So he like blew his mind. So he's still like, he literally up until like 15 minutes ago was like still <laughs> rolling the dice. And he's like, we still haven't gotten a Yahtzee. And I'm telling you, we've rolled the dice. I think we were up to like 175 times and there still has not been a single Yahtzee. So I'm actually guaranteed one. You're not. Right? It just has a particular probability of maybe happening. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Man, okay, we should do that exercise, all of us in medicine, because I don't know, mm-hmm. I, I fall victim to it too, and I certainly hear in conversations, like, people say something, a patient has a bad outcome, and mm-hmm. then now forever, you send anyone with a similar presentation for an MRI right away, or, like, <laughs> or even something not as dramatic as that, but, like, yeah. well, a common one I see a lot, because I've been doing a lot of, like, um education about like uh paperwork and time management and like people are like no but i have to chart in super great detail because i'm going to get sued yeah which is like i don't even know if this is the same thought fallacy that we yeah. but like similar well whether you get sued or not is not based on how well you chart and um it's not right like that's not why yeah. people get sued uh but even like that like we were so superstitious because we see mm-hmm. these really scary oh. outcomes yeah. And, and then we do totally forget about risk assessment, really. Yeah. Yeah. It changes our our assessment of our perception of risk, right? Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's really tricky. And that's a dangerous sort of hole to go down in medicine. And that's where I would hope in the future, it, you know, where AI is going to have a role to play in medicine, it will at some point. I don't think it'll ever replace the human element. But in algorithms like this that may help guide both physicians and patients together to show like well really this is your risk you know if we don't do this mri or whatever that will be helpful right to have sort of like real machine learning you know data to to help guide us in some of those choices right so um I look forward to that being used in like uh, in a in a helpful way, hopefully. <laughs> and not like as our robot robot like overlords are like. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because nothing will ever replace human reassurance. Like a robot saying there there, your risk of cancer is zero point one percent is not really gonna like make people feel good. <laughs> so. Oh, have you seen Wally? Like Wally's really cute. So true. I mean, I guess. I mean, if you made the machine have like big eyes with big pupils and was fuzzy or something, maybe. Fuzzy <laughs> robot. That's so yeah. Um, another element that you brought up, like before we started recording, was like working as a woman in medicine, mm-hmm. and whether you know from your life pre-medicine, but you know you. Well, as far as I know, you've been a female your whole life. Yep. And, uh, um, and so are there elements then that you think, especially with burnout as it is now, that are are different for people who are perceived as female in society and have been raised as female in society that um, uniquely lead to burnout? I think so. I mean, notwithstanding the obvious, which is that women still are the primary caregivers in most households to children. And, you know, most household, most people are still having children, you know, no matter what sort of, you know, sex, gender situation. Um, At least I think so. I haven't looked at the stats on that lately, but, um, you know, and, and most women are working, right? So, I don't think that we have addressed as a society what that what that means. I think it happened very, very quickly. Like if you look at sort of the number of women who were working full time in like the 1970s when, you know, many of us were born um, or even into the early 80s and, and the number now, like the percentage is much, much higher. Right. So who who's like there's there's a lot of work that has to be done in a household. I think many of us also experience that like with COVID being at home, holy cow, like that is a full-time job, turns out, right? So, um, and, 
you know, so there's that. So there's the fact that, okay, so now women are working full time in the same jobs that men traditionally did. But I don't think, but I do think that the expectations are different still. I think in caregiving jobs, particularly, um, I do think that there's, there are these sort of, um, expectations that are not always explicit. They're kind of implicit, um, that women are going to go the extra mile. They're going to spend the extra time. They're going to, you know, empathize, um, uh, you know, that they would never sort of say to somebody like, okay, like, sorry, our time is up or set boundaries. Like there's a lot of that, that I think bleeds into caregiving jobs. And I think that, you know, for nursing, let's say, as an example, they've had unions and, and rightly like, thank goodness, because I cannot imagine the abuse that would happen and probably already does happen to nurses if they didn't have a union <laughs> to protect them. And I think in medicine, what we're seeing, you know, not to say that I am, uh, well, I, I would say I am generally pro, pro, pro union. That's probably going to make a lot of people be like, ugh, but it serves, you know, it's, it serves a purpose when people are, um, working in large organizations and don't have a way to protect their basic human rights, their humanity rights, right? So human rights in the sense of exactly what you're talking about on your podcast, which is that we are humans first, right? We have families, we have, we have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to, you know, have time off. These are basic, you know, um, necessities of life. <laughs> and uh, corporations don't care <laughs> about those things unless you make them. So medicine is suffering in part, I think, because of that lack of organization to have any way to stand up for ourselves, for our basic humanity. Um, and I'm not sure if a union is the solution. I'm not sure, you know, I, I certainly don't think our associations that were supposed to re represent us have been able to help as much as we, th we hoped. And I, and I feel for them because I feel the reason for that is because they also are made up of other humans working in these jobs who are not protected. And, you know, they're giving the little tiny little bit that they may, they probably don't even have the bandwidth for either. Right. So um, I don't think any of us have spoken up until now in the way that we have started to, certainly in primary care, until it really got people don't realize how many years people were carrying extra, 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 extra. And then finally just were like, okay, like I literally cannot, it's, it's like my life. Like I will literally die if I have to continue this way. Right. Because most of us will sacrifice to the point of like nearly sacrificing, like our, we certainly sacrifice our health. We sacrifice our family life. We sacrifice, eating, drinking, peeing, like, you know, holidays, children's concerts, like everything. And this, I don't know, things just, I think got pushed to a point of like, it just cannot go on like this. Right. So I'm not sure how, it, what that means for us in terms of how we're going to organize ourselves to ensure that our human needs are met. Um, well, I know my thesis, which is like, like it, literally has to start with each of us as a start anyway like yeah. it's not because it should or like it would be nice if someone was coming to save us yeah <laughs> but also but not. Who, i also like literally this entire thing is made up of human beings yeah. and i just think at the end of the day like if you don't end up embodying what you're hoping will the system will look like I, I think it's yeah. a lot more challenging to even know what's needed because you're not rested enough yeah. to do anything about it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, and it's like, it gives you the strength to set boundaries. It gives you the strength. Like, I think it's so interesting, like what you were saying about expectations for going the extra mile and, you know, like this self-sacrificing clinician, and then you add in being a woman and you add in all this other stuff, like there, for sure you see that sometimes even literally explicitly from patients or colleagues, but like so much of it is carried internally. Mm -hmm. And, and you do have a say in that you could at least 
I know for me, cleaning up my internalized question, right? Because then like the rest of it, you understand, you know, you're all brainwashed into the same thing. You're like, oh, they're just still brainwashed. Like it, it, it does help. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I also think we just don't even know. I love what you said about how this is still new. Mm-hmm. That's like, you're giving me like all these different like human perspectives on this, which is, we didn't even know what we were going to talk about. Maybe, but this, is like, <laughs> this is still new. Like this is still unfolding. Mm-hmm. Right? It is for sure. Yeah. Actually just don't even know. We don't, we don't. And I, I really do, I know there's a lot of sometimes people who kind of trash talk the younger generation of docs coming in and saying like, oh, you know, they don't want to work hard, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all about work-life balance. And I'm like, good, congratulations, thank God, right? Because somebody needs to come into this profession and set some boundaries, right? And I am happy that they are doing that. I am sad that that means in the interim, particularly for family medicine, you know, people are not stupid. They come in and they, into medical school, they get exposed to all the different specialties, including family medicine. And many of them are like, no, thank you, right? And uh, it's a hard sell right now. And it's gonna be a hard sell for quite a while, Um, which is too bad because many, many, many people who go into medicine like myself and like you are just generalists by nature, just in terms of how our brains work, how we think, how we like organize information in our brains. And you need to have generalists and specialists for this whole thing to work, right? I don't know if you've read um, David Epstein, I believe his name is his book, um, Range, but if, any if you or any of your listeners highly highly recommend it's it's a book i think the subtitle of it is like how generalists win out in in the end or something like that it's basically about how we can we have been trying to solve many problems um in all kinds of industries um with subspecialization and actually what we need are more generalists to approach problems because they approach problems very differently um, and often, often, I don't want to say better, but they're often better collaborators and for difficult, complex problems, these are the types of thinkers that you need. So for us to lose generalist type thinkers into specialties and subspecialties, I think it's actually a real loss, like a huge loss, right, um, for society. So, yeah, so I hope the younger people... We have the lifestyle part, right? But it's like, listen, it's like a really, you get to solve more problems if you're in general family medicine, right? Like your your range. Your range is huge. Yeah. My joke always, when I'm getting together with non-medical people, you know, sitting on a dock somewhere, I'm always like, so, you know, when the zombie apocalypse happens, and I used to make this joke before the pandemic, uh, I'm like, when the zombie apocalypse comes, like, you don't want like an ear, nose and throat doctor. You want a family doctor or a general surgeon or like, like those are the only people who are going to help you like when society collapses, period. Right. So, and I'm sure you experience this too. Anytime you travel with friends or even you go somewhere, you know, on the weekend where there's a bunch of people, how many times do you end up using your primary care skills to solve some type of problem or answer some type of question or take a sliver out of a kid or diagnose a rash on spec or you know stabilize an ankle like literally this this past long weekend i used up every steri strip that i had because i think <laughs> you know like at least five people avoided going to emerge due to my steri strips <laughs> like uh never mind like pediatric constipation consult like you know you name it like you know looking at someone's sore throat like not like being their doctor doctor but you know giving people a quick little you know interpreting a family member who was in the hospital all weekends like lab results for them because they're getting them in real time on their phone and they're panicking and you know talking them down it's like we have so such breadth of skills such a range of skills we are valuable and I, my, I hope my legacy, at least in te- my teaching part of family medicine, is that I want to impart my exuberance and joy for 
embracing that part of who we as generalists are. You should be super proud of yourself. We are awesome, right? We've had such negativity around family doctors being like, oh, it's, you know, what you do if you can't be a specialist. Such bull crap, you know? So I want the people who choose this to be proud of what they do. And I, um, and I, I think, you know, I'm glad the conversation now in the media is turning a bit more towards like, whoa, okay, what's happening with family doctors? Like, let's actually listen to what they're saying. You know, they're humans and actually like they're important people in this piece of the healthcare puzzle, like a really important piece, right? So, yeah. yeah. I love that. Oh. I feel like that could be part of the ad, you know, mm -hmm. and like, so one of the things I'm exploring in terms of like how to make primary care continue to be sustainable is really shifting to to more deeply partner with my patients. Yeah. And so like, I would say from the beginning or pretty quickly early on, I, I did that one-on-one, -on -one, but I'm like starting to think about exploring how to do it even more as like a collective, like through surveys or actually through little focus groups or like Zoom meetings with patients, like just trying to get a sense of like, what's important to them, what, um, would be more, what do they actually value that I offer and what do they not necessarily value? Yep. yep. What are ways that I could automate or delegate some of the functions of what I do now? Yep. I don't know. Um, so that's, it's an interesting way of considering expanding the range and it's yep, something yep. that's unique to pr primary care. Cause you kind of have your people, you have your, I have my yep, 1100, yep. my little set of humans yep, yep. that are yep. currently rostered to me. Um, I don't know. Have you, have you heard anyone doing that kind of work or have you thought about how you could partner with patients to help yeah. expand range? I haven't thought too, too much about that. I mean, we, I would say the only thing I can liken that to in our practice was we recently started to offer online booking for patients. And I kind of was skeptical at first, to be honest, I was like, ugh. First of all, I don't think that many of my patients are going to use it or they're going to misuse it or like, I don't really like them like knowing like exactly what my schedule is and all these kind of, you know, meh, meh. But, you know, I was like, okay, well, like, we're going to try it out and, and see. And obviously this is the future, like can't stand in the way of this. And, you know, it's actually been great. And I've had really good feedback from patients. Like I was surprised at how quickly people ad adapted to changes in terms of how they interacted with, you know, their primary care provider. I think what I would like to see in terms of like, just at a more, um, like I like how you're looking at sort of the micro microcosm or microscopic level. What can I do and what can I do in my practice? I've been, and I will think about that actually, that's really um, good stuff for me to sort of consider and think about. I tend more towards like big, big picture thinking in terms of my thoughts around like, well, from an infrastructure point of view, things that would make the biggest difference in primary care, you know, to me are things like building an infrastructure around like how referrals are, are dispersed and managed and, you know, follow-ups for like recalls for test results. And these to me are not things actually that should be managed in a primary care small office setting. It's actually ludicrous. And um, that's where the government needs to step up. That's where we need to say like, you know what would really help is if every referral actually went into a centralized system where, you know, f first available, you know, maybe you have right of refusal once or twice or whatever, but it's actually not my problem, nor my secretary's, nor, you know what I mean? It's between you and the system, actually. It's not me. Like, I actually don't control how many specialists there are or what their availability is, or, you know, that's a system-based problem and it needs to, to be managed, you know? Um, so... And probably people will be grateful for that. I don't think our patients want us to be micromanaging what, when they get an appointment to see a dermatologist. It's ridiculous, um, right? Yeah. The other big system I, I do keep thinking about, and I'm, I'm like, should I try and organize something? Can we just 
do a generalized strike to stop writing sick notes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I stop being, um, you know, an extension of the HR department of companies that don't mm -hmm. want to believe their employees that they're sick. Yeah. You just believe them. I know there's like probably lots of nuance in the insurance world about X, Y, Z, but it's just like the amount of like the forms and the sick notes and they have to come back. Yeah. And like, if they're not ready to come back, they're not ready to go back. And whether the patient is being, you know what I mean? Like there's all this, like, that means that you can believe them. Like, I am going to believe my patient when they say they can't exactly. do something. Yeah. I'm not sending a spy to check <laughs> if they really are sick or not, if they're really on vacation. So like, why am I involved? Well, I we, shouldn't, we, we shouldn't be involved in anything that is conflict of interest, essentially. I don't, I don't think, right? If, if me charging a patient for something or me deciding whether you can go back to work or not is, you know, a thing that affects my relationship with that patient, right? If I charge them, if I say no, if I have a, you know, I actually think those types of things also should be administratively dealt with in a different channel. I really do. I think the second you become essentially disabled, there should be a place that you go where somebody else does an independent assessment. They audit all the notes and everything up to there. And that process happens outside of our patient doctor relationship. Um, I was curious. So like, what is helping you stay connected to your humanity? Like what's keeping you going in medicine right now? So if, you know, family time for sure. You know, I have a super, super rich social life that I've always protected. Um, I think I probably um, entertain, party, go to concerts, travel more than all, most doctors I know, um, probably to my own detriment sometimes, but that is, that keeps me being me, right? Um, I've never been somebody who, you know, like, I, I just, to me, like, that's, I still want to enjoy my life. I'm very protective about making sure that I have a life that's outside of medicine. Um, and I exercise a lot. I'm like, so if, if I had an actual nine to five job, I probably would be doing like two hours of exercise a day if, if allowed. That's just like, that's my happy state to be in. I get frustrated and resentful of my job sometimes when it prevents me from exercising the amount that I like to. And that for me, it's not an obsessive thing. It's just that I like to be strong. Um, I like the, you know, all the benefits of exercise. I think I listened to one of your um, podcasts last week talking about how, you know, that sort of getting in touch with your body part that really spoke to me, but it could be yoga. It could be running for me. It's, you know, it, it depends. I, I do different types of sports, like play, play tennis. I run, I used to do more weight training. Um, sometimes I do yoga, whatever I feel like, to be honest, <laughs> like, and I, that's super, super important to me. Um, so yeah. And like, you know, I just, my family, we have fun. Like we go to concerts. We, my husband's a musician we listen to music. Like my boys and I, like we watch crazy movies together. We have, you know, big political discussions about things. You know, when we do eat together, we try to make it something, you know, so I'm all about leaning into, you know, the whole work hard, play hard kind of thing, but not to the point of complete abject burnout for the playing part. But I'm, I, I think life should be fun. I don't believe in this, um, the mythology of the altruistic, all sacrificing doctor who, whose whole life revolves around medicine. I just don't buy it and I don't believe it. And I don't think it makes you a better doctor, frankly. <laughs> so. I've actually, I've been really getting into, I, I, I made this year a year where I try and cultivate more rest and pleasure and like mm -hmm. the pleasure. And there's this book called pleasure activism. So even just like from an activism standpoint, like as someone raised female in society, like really owning, enjoying your life yeah. is mildly countercultural, especially if it's yeah. not the ways of like guilty pleasure or something. Yeah. That's actually sneakily yeah so, um stigmatizing pleasure true like, yeah. what if you're just enjoying your life yeah why are you not just allowed to be happy and like 
have like having pleasurable experiences, right? Whatever those are, who cares? Like, yeah, I agree with that. I came, you know, I will add one little last tidbit to my background that I don't usually share, but I mean, I, I came from a, a, a background also before medicine that was very counterculture in the sense that like I came up, I, my husband still produces techno music. We were a big part of like the rave scene and like, you know, I was kind of like a punk rock girl in high school and like definitely not the the typical like bookworm kind of person but I always still I knew that you could be both I knew that you could like still do well in school uh, for stuff that you wanted to do well or cared about and still do all of those other things and be like a punk rock girl or a rave girl or whatever and I was like no way am I letting it go I hit it for sure when I first went into medicine because I encountered a new culture that I I wasn't sure if it would accept me and it didn't feel like it did and I like took my nose ring out and like all the things and tried I even tried like because you know I go by Mimi but my real name is Maddie's I tried to like sound more tried out that name like my real name that I know what he calls me and then I had to like revert back because I was trying on this role and I was like this is not me so I am so grateful now that I see especially you know with this Facebook group with the CPMG group it's so lovely to see so many different types of doctors now with new generations and not being stuck in those boxes and you can really be yourself i can wear my doc martens to work and rock them and my patients love it (laughs) i've never had anybody say anything but good you know so i'm happy that there's space being created especially for women particularly to just to be themselves and to you know, have fun and not be like, you know, you can still be professional. Like there's still, you can, you can be both. Right. So both we are large. We can contain multitudes. Absolutely. Agree. It's all, it's all about those overlapping things, right? Whichever way you want to look at it, three dimensional, four dimensional, sideways, upside down, all the ways. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. um, First podcast guest. I'm so excited. Thank you. I feel like it's an honor. I would love to hear from you. Please share your human moments in medicine with me on Instagram at joanchanmd or on my website, joanchanmd.com. On my website, you can also find other restorative medical education offerings I have, including one-on-one coaching opportunities and skill building workshops. I look forward to connecting with you there.